James 4, verse number 13. It'll also be on the screen uh, behind me. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Now, if you were here this morning looking for encouragement, I am so sorry. Because that's like the most depressing verse in the Bible. For you are, here's why, for you are just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Uh, just one more time again, let's go to the Lord and pray over the reading of God's word. So God, once again, here we are. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that your word has just spoken to us to bring uh, not just correction, but bring life inside of us, Lord. God, that the word uh, that we're not just reading it, but it is reading our mail. It is reading us, Lord, and we thank you for that. May we all be able to collectively say as we leave this room how great and glorious our Christ the King is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It, what's happening here in this text with, with James is going to make some arguments concerning, concerning us as opposed to God. Now, the first thing right out the gate is that He's very generous in his assessment in our ignorance, okay? Uh, he says, you do not know what today or, or you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now, there are two different types of people. Maybe there's a third one in here, but we'll, we'll go with the, the two types of people. There is the person that has built out, written down their plan for tomorrow uh, what time the bell, the alarm's going to go off? Uh, what does my calendar look like for work? What am I going to do at noon? What am I going to do for lunch? And you've got all those things structured, and you've got those things written out. All right, kudos to you for being an A-typer. And then you've got the rest of us folk who are just kind of on the edge of, well, I kind of know what tomorrow is going to bring. I kind of know what I've got to do. I know I've got a schedule out there, but I'd rather avoid that schedule because I don't even care to look at it. And then there may be the third person in here is like, what's a schedule? <laughs> okay, okay. And if, and if you were living in the South, I, I'd, be, I'd be having a lot more folks that would be saying amen because those folks don't believe in any kind of scheduling or anything down there. And I know that because I am one of them and I am from those parts of the nation. I think James is being just a little bit more generous in his approach because if we're honest, not only do we not know what really is going to take place tomorrow, but I would venture to say that we really don't even know what's going to happen today. I have an idea of what I'm going to do when I leave this place. I have an idea that I'm going to go to small group and I'm going to eat some food and I'm going to sit and listen to Daniel teach from the book of Acts. And then from there, when people leave my house, 
I'm going to attempt to take a nap, but my six-year-old would not allow me to do that. And so I'm going to get up in frustration and do what he wants me to do. And then later I'm going to have dinner, maybe, I guess, I don't know what that's going to look like. And then eventually I'm going to go to bed. Now, I say that, and we all think that, yeah, we have some sort of clue or some sort of idea of what we're going to do today, but the reality of it is, is that we live in a culture where just one phone call can disrupt your life and change everything about what you are going to do today. James is being a little generous. I would suggest not only do you not know what you're going to do tomorrow, but the fact of the matter is, is that for the most of us, we don't even know what our very own today holds. And this is what James is getting at. He's he's pointing out this reality that we don't know. It's in this middle of this tension as we lack knowledge. Look what he says. What is your life? For you are a mist. Now in the Greek, this is not, this word mist is not like the fog that sticks around for like four or five hours in the morning. No, this is like, again, I have to draw this back to my southern upbringing. When you, when you exit a, a Kroger or a Smith's or Walmart, there is the fine gentleman or, or lady there who is puffing on their e-cigarette or their cigarette, and it is a poof. It's there for a second in your face, and gone the next. That's what James is telling you. That's a sobering thought, that you're not the fog that lingers in humidity like climates that's there all morning long and then comes back in the evening. No, you're the e-cigarette. You are just a puff. Have you ever had a pastor tell you that you are an e-cigarette? Where do I come up with this stuff? You'll have to forgive me, or you could walk out. I don't care. This, James is telling you, you have not only a lack of knowledge, but you have a lack of power. What is your life? You don't, you don't know what today brings that's a, that's a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. In fact, it, it's really a revelation of ignorance. And then he says, not only do you have a lack of knowledge, and there's, this, there's this, this hint of ignorance among all of us, but you lack power to do anything about it. Now, that's sobering for all of us. Now, in the realm of these two central ideas, I lack knowledge Thanks, James. And I lack power. Appreciate that again, James. That is not the reality of who God is. In fact, when we understand who God is, it's actually going to make some of us even feel a little bit more ignorant and a little bit uh, feeling less powerful. There's a concept among theologians, and, and you don't necessarily will find these three terms in the Bible, but you will find these three concepts in the Bible. It's what we call the three O's of God. It's the character, the nature of God. That God is omnipotent, that God is omniscient, and that God is omnipresent. That God is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful. For those of us who feel like we did have a sense of power when we walked in this room and then we heard 
James's letter to us, and now we feel like we don't have power. Well, there's good news. There is one who does have all the power. He has all power. He is the all-powerful one. Everything, he is, he, is, he is over everyone. He is over everything, and he is over every darkness in this world. God is all-powerful. In fact, you see this working throughout the person of Jesus in this omnipotent power. When he's met with the demon-possessed people, they shudder. They're in fear. In fact, they're pleading for their lives, right? This goes counter against any kind of Hollywood theme where you see uh, any kind of ideas of a clash between Jesus or God or, or the Holy Spirit and evil. Like when we, we think about some, some terrible movies, by the way, that have been made about this kind of stuff, Jesus and God are like struggling. I'm like, that's, <laughs> you're a fool if you believe that God is going to struggle with anyone or anything. God is all powerful. Everything is going to bow at his knee. And they're not going to be like fighting him as they're bowing. No, at Jesus, at this moment in history, everyone will bow before the all-powerful one, the all-powerful God. Not only that, he's all-knowing. So if we, don't lack, if we lack power, God has all the power. And if we lack knowledge, then God has all the knowledge. He's all-knowing. There's not anything that he does not know. He knows it all. You think you may know it all, and you've been pegged as a child as the know-it-all, but you don't know it all. God knows it all. And not only does he know it all, not only does he have all power, but the one that really just messes with my mental capabilities is that he is omnipresent. He is at all times, at all places. Now, don't think too hard on that because your brain will explode. So he was in my past while he's in my future while he's also in my present. It is this concept that God is completely devoid, completely outside of time. He is omnipresent. Now, I don't know about you, but I have at some points in my life have stretched myself too thin. In fact, there are moments now where I feel like I am stretched too thin. I've bit off in some cases way more than I can chew. All right? I, anybody else like that? Am I the only? I'm, I am sure, like I feel that right now. Like I feel like there's some things and I keep, I'm an idiot too because I keep volunteering to do more things. It's as if like I'm the only person who can do it. Maybe it's a Messiah complex. Maybe I've turned this whole sermon into a, a therapy session. But, but nonetheless, here's one who does not think they've bit off more than they can chew. And that's God. You think God's up in the heavens like with all the chaos going on in the Middle East or, or, in, or in Ukraine or even like in the United States of America? Do you think God is just up there going like, mm, I, wouldn't, I didn't see this one coming? 
Like, I, I think I have bit off way more than I can chew here. And then he just kind of goes around in the heavens and blames everybody. No, God is all powerful. He's all knowing. He's, he's at all times and all places. And there's nothing too hard for him to handle. Now, if that's us, we lack knowledge. We lack power. And this, if, if this is God, he has all power. He has all knowledge. He is at all times at all, place, all places then any type of boasting or any type of, I don't know, swag that we may have that we think we know about tomorrow, in the end is just foolish. It's just absolutely foolish. In fact, we're just a people who, who we can't even see the forest for the trees. We, we are caught in the weeds of life. And the resolve to that is knowing that we can trust a God who does have all the knowledge, who does have all the power. We could trust him because we know that he is a good God. How do we know he's good? Well, all you got to do is just look at the cross. That's all you have to do. Now, I love how James starts this, uh, this, this dialogue when he says, uh, come on, come now, you who say. I like that because in modern language, we would have translated this as like, oh, come on, man. Like, what's wrong with you? Do you really think you know what tomorrow holds? Now, that begs a question uh, that's presented before us. And the question is, well, then should we have plans? Right? Now, if you've read Proverbs, the, the answer to that is yes. You ought to have plans. In fact, the Proverbs are filled with wisdom about planning and execution of the plan. So that's not necessarily what James is saying. He's not necessarily saying that you cannot have plans, nor is he saying that with everything you have to say, you have to, sit, you have to put the tagline in, well, if the Lord wills. Now, that's like an old person thing. I don't know if any of y'all ever heard of that phrase, well, if the Lord wills. Yeah, okay, well, I just identify somebody in here that knows that phrase. Uh, but for the most of us, we don't know that. And James is not saying that you have to put, if the Lord wills behind everything you say. So what is the importance then of what James is saying? That's the question that we have to wrestle with in our short time together. And the importance of what James is saying is two things. God knows the future, and you don't. Okay? Pretty simple, isn't it? God knows, you don't. Now, just a few points from this, that God knows the future, we don't, that he's pointing out here that ought to do something to us, and the first thing it ought to do, that God knows that he has this knowledge about the future and a power to do something about it, and we don't, the first thing that I observe from this passage is that this ought to humble us. This ought to be so humbling for some of us in here this morning. Now, James' emphasis on humility has been this melodic line that's been running through his letter to the church. In fact, you don't have to go too far. You just look at the simple chapter that you're in. In chapter uh, 4, you look back at verse 6. He tells us God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
He comes back to it again in verse 10 when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The fact that our ignorance about what tomorrow holds ought to be the occasion for us to humble us because the future that is hidden from us is ultimately for our good. Now, that's, you wrestle with that on your own way and you think about that in your own time, but I'll tell you this right now. That here's why it's, it's for your own good. Uh, if, if anyone who knows about all of the successes that lies before them, I'll tell you what that person's going to be. That person's going to be unbearable. Ain't nobody going to want to be that person's friend. Oh, well, you don't know me. You know, little Mr. Smug's going to come out and, and well, well, I'm going to be, you know, ultimate, you know, the, the best thing that's ever walked on this planet. And like your head is going to be swollen so large that it fills this room that nobody's going to be around you. There is a reason why you ultimately do not know the future for those of you who have a bit of an arrogance about the future. And it's because no one wants to be around that. Now, in the, in the other part of this, I think it's also for your good that you don't know the, the stumbles that lie ahead of you. It's also for your good that you don't know the failures that lie ahead of you. Because, because what we read from the, from the Bible is that from those failures, God works through those things to grow us more into his image. And so the fact that you don't know about your future is ultimately for your good and it is there to keep you humble. That's, that's pretty simple. You don't know about your future. God does. And ultimately, that ought to cause within all of us a bit of humility. The other thing that this ought to bring to our attention is that since we don't know, right, since there's this element of lack of knowledge and a lack of power to do anything about it, then I think what James is getting after in this whole book is that we ought to make our lives about Christ. That our plans for the here and our future plans, which are good, should be informed by, driven by, and fueled by a greater reality. And the greater reality is Christ. In fact, Colossians 3 verse 1 says it like this. If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, you are born again believer. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, right? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden 
with Christ and God. And then verse 4. Verse 4 is this key phrase that ought to be the mark of all of us. When Christ who is your life. When Christ who is your life appears. Then you will also appear with him in glory. That key little phrase. When Christ is your life. That's huge. That's what James is getting after. That since you have a lack of knowledge and a lack of power to do anything, then Christ has to be your life. What does that mean? That does it. And this, this tears down any kind of privatization of your faith. Okay? There ain't nothing more that gets on my nerves is when somebody tells me, well, I'm just, I'm just living my life for Jesus in my little private time. Can you provide a chapter and verse in the Bible? No, you can't. Faith is not a privatized matter. It is not, well, I've got my spouse here. I've got my hobbies. I've got my job. And on, on the side over here on Sunday, I got Jesus. No. You have a horrible view of Christianity and what Christ has called you into. Christ has not called you into this. This is a subtle, mediocre little faith where when I feel like it, I'll come out of my closet and go pray for someone. And the, the disciples would be mocking you, right? I mean, they would just think this is hilarious that Christianity, for some part, has become this idea of privatization. Well, it's just me. I don't need, you don't need to know about it. It's just my truth that I'm going to live in my own time. And every now and then, I'm going to let it come out. No. When Christ is my life, then Christ is my life in my marriage. Christ is my life in my relationships. Christ is my life in my job. Christ is my life in what I am doing right now. Christ is in my life now, and he is in my life with every future plan that I have. Again, it's not wrong to make plans. It's not what James is saying. The problem is, is that the issue is why are you making those plans? And if you're making those plans void of Christ, then James is getting the belt after you. And it's stinging just a little bit, isn't it? Retirement's not bad. Like, like planning for your future isn't bad. But if Christ isn't in the center of everything that you're doing, then you might as well just be some puff. Here, the, here's the uh, other thing. This other part of his argument. Verse 17, look at that. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, has sinned. Now, if you've gone by not feeling a little bit of rebuke up until this point, my, my, the, the steel toe boot has just kicked your shin, honey, 
Because notice what he didn't say. It's not this reality of, well, I know what I ought not to do. And since I didn't do that, <laughs> I've been like in this, uh, um, I, I'm in the, the, the waterfall of the blessings of Jesus. Right, right? James says, if that's how you're living your life, then, then that's not enough. He says that you have to do what is right. What is right? Okay, that's the question. Well, you think of right, I think of righteousness. I think of knowing what I have to be doing. What is the right thing to do in every situation? Are we doing the right thing we know we ought to do? That's what James is, is asking us here. Righteousness. That's the right thing to do. Standing up for what is right. That is the right thing to do. Now, if I might just... Side note this, if I can. That is not how, for some of us, how our Christian walk has been marked. We think we're just getting by by just, you know, not doing sinful things. And we think that's good. That God is like, we've, like he's been earned, like we've been earned in his favor or something because of that. What the world needs most, you, you hear this? What the world needs most right now is the church to stand for righteousness. Not for what culture says is right. Not, not for what, what, what everybody thinks is right, but what is the righteous thing to do. And then what is the righteous thing to do? Well, well, we measure that by the word of God. How will we not know what the right thing to do is if we don't know the word of God? What is void in our world today is a voice of the church standing and calling out what is righteousness. I know that, that's, that's just my observation, okay? You may disagree and that's fine. You're wrong, okay? But I think, right, because nobody disagrees with the preacher. But I think, except for you're my wife, she disagrees and she's right most of the time. It's true though. I mean, you just, you just think of like all the wicked things that are taking place in our culture. And so, and so the position of the church is, is that, well, you know what? Well, just, well, just let them do them, you know, do you and just leave me alone. And, and you know, I, I, they're just wicked and, and they're just going to burn in hell anyway. Now, we're not going to verbalize it like that. But, but, but where are the people who are standing, who are speaking out for what is right? James says, man, like we've all been indicted in this room this morning. James says, if you know the right thing and you've not done it, you are just as sinful 
as the person who has done the wrong thing. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty, pretty sobering reality. Peter writes in, in, in his letter in 1 Peter 2.24 that we die to sin and we live to righteousness. Not mediocrity, not dabbling in what culture says is acceptable, not dabbling into, you know, because the world is called good evil and evil good, so we're afraid to touch those things. No, you have died in your sins, and now you live to righteousness. I want to be on the side of God. How am I on the side of God? I stand for what is right. Do the right thing, James says. Do the right thing. Even when it's difficult, even when it's unpopular, you do the right thing. What is this? And you ask the question, what does this require of me? Well, I'll tell you the answer to that. The right thing, the righteous thing, that's what it requires of you. Now, righteousness, you know, in some sense is, is scary. We're not obtaining to, to be viewed as righteous so that we could be accepted by God. No, that's, that's, that's the imputed righteousness of Christ is how we are accepted by God. But it is then this call to live in that righteousness. James asked the proverbial question in this text that we all have to ask ourselves, what is your life? And you can approach that question in two different ways. You can approach that answer with, well, sounds like James is saying that we're just worthless and, you know, we're, we're just here a minute, gone the next. So what's the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of living? And some of you are living like that and you're living just to exist. Or you can approach this in the right way. When he's asking you to examine yourself, what is your life? If I am here a moment and gone the next, then I have got to live my, way, my life in such a way that is about Christ. And, 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 and that means that I have, I have, if I have 40 more years or 50 more years, Lord help everyone if I am 91 years old. Because if I am this disgruntled at 41, imagine me at 91. I pity my children and grandchildren. Or if I have an hour left. If that's the sobering reality that James has presented to us, then how am I going to live my life? And, and I go back to this idea of why this is humbling. Be, because, because if I'm going to live my life for Christ now, then that means that I'm not going to wait 30 years to, to live in the calling that God has for me. I'm going to do that now because I don't know when my last breath is going to be drawn from my body. And I just wonder, like, for some of us in this room, like, how are you living your life now? Are you living it in this realm of eternity? That my life, my life, I, God has given me but a short 
time on this earth. How am I going to live that? And, and the answer for a believer, the only answer can be and must be, I will live every moment with Christ as my reality. With Christ as my reality. What is your life? That's what you've got to wrestle with. Now, if you've not noticed, all right, you've been living on a rock or this is your first time here and you're just like, what in the world is the book of James all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. It's a diagnostic and it is putting you in an MRI, examining you, putting the finger on the pain points of your life. And if we're not honest, like I got to tell you, when I first approached James and I, I, I went through this book about 10 years ago, I felt like I was like, what's the hope? What am I, how am I going to live this? I'll tell you how you're going to live this. You're going to live this in the light of what Christ has already done for you. That's how you approach a book that seems like it's getting at every detail of your life. Because Jesus knows you're going to stumble, you're going to fail. He knows we are fools. He knows you're going to fail. He knows we don't even know what's coming today. He knows we don't even know what lies before us. He knows that our lives are just a mist or just a puff. He knows. He knows it's going to feel crushing and weighty at times. He knows. But he made a way. He made a way. He made a way that for those of us who believe in him, that even if this earthly life feels like just the vapor, he made a way. He made a way so that our life can be beyond this world. Because one day you will step into that reality. And I hope that reality is that you have made Christ your king. And he made a way so that that could be possible, so that if this life is just a vapor, life with Christ is eternal. And that is, that is a hope that I, I pray every one of you feel when you walk away from this. So what are you doing with the short time that God has given you on this earth? I leave that with you. What are you doing with the short time that God has given you on this earth.